0: I am guessing that that is a foretaste of what you're going to get at Winter Wonder. So I hope you all do plan on, on coming. It, it's, it's really an incredible outreach opportunity as well. So if you've been, I know you guys laughed when Troy said a, a low cringe event, but you all know what we mean by that. That there's times where you're at a church event and, and, and you cringe at what we goofy Christians do. And we work really hard at... The events like the one coming up to put our best foot forward we're obviously going to talk about Jesus it is Christmas and we're going to give the gospel but the music and the artistry is just going to be phenomenal at least it was last year and Troy is very trustworthy in that it will be diverse and so you know expect there to be you know across the map from more traditional stuff to real contemporary stuff but uh, last year it was a great great event and we hope it will be again this year Uh, Hopefully, as Troy mentioned, you were handed a compass on your way in and there's a lot of information about uh, our church in here and what's going on for our our season of Christmas and even into the new year. And then this week, hopefully... Uh, many of you will get in the mail a brochure that looks like this that's talking about the 50-year anniversary of Scottsdale Bible Church starting this next month in January, where we'll be 50 years old at a church. And this brochure that you'll get, and if you don't get it, you can grab one next Sunday. We'll have about 2,000 of them out in in our welcome area. But if you get one in the mail, read it because this will let you know a timeline of our church for the last 50 years and great pictures on the history of our church, and then toward the end of it, exactly what's going to be going on in all next year for our 50th anniversary. So you saw a video a couple weeks ago, but this is in print form of all that we're doing. It even includes a tear-off card that you can put on your fridge of all the major events that are happening beginning in January for our church. We're really fired up about giving God honor and glory and thanksgiving for what he's done and for the next 50 years should Christ tarry when it comes to the life of our church in this country of ours. Now, um, things I'm most excited about in 50 years is that we're going to do 50 service projects as a church. You're going to hear more about that as we go into next year. We're going to have 50 hours of prayer around Easter time to to just really bathe uh, our community and our church in prayer. And then you heard me mention this last summer, we're going to do 50 mission trips this next year. That is really cool. Uh, We usually do about 25 mission trips, but we've decided to double the number of mission trips we do, and we need all of you to help participate in that. And we had over 600 families sign up in August when we announced this, and so we're off to the races on that. I want to spend just a quick moment right now highlighting one particular trip because it's new, and we need all of you to at least pray about this or or join us in thinking about it. And that is that we have decided to get involved about a year ago, More in Eastern and Western Europe, they're really hurting when it comes to the gospel. I mean, the seat of the Reformation, Western Europe, that that was gave us so much 200 years ago when it came to the founding of our country and Christianity. Like four percent go to church, and so every year there's a thing called the European Leadership Forum where 40 different nations are represented. It's a leadership conference, and it's held in in Agar, Hungary. And we went last year to sort of check it out and take some volunteers. And we're very excited about this week in May and helping them put this conference on. It involves so many Christians, about 500 of them, all throughout Western and Eastern Europe. In fact, we call that week a tour of the nations. And we get the wonderful privilege as a church to be one of the main supporting churches volunteer-wise, to help put this forum on where leaders come from all over Europe to talk about how to strengthen Europe for the cause of Christ. Some of our key players are involved in this. Dr. Wayne Grudem will be speaking there this May. Uh, Dr. Tim Kimmel is going to be speaking there, one of the plenary speakers. And then I'll be doing a few breakout sessions. But the reason I'm sharing this with you all is that we need to take about 30 to 50 volunteers there to help put this on. It's a bona fide mission trip. You won't be digging a ditch. You won't be running an Awana club. You're going to be doing things like administration, driving people to and from the airport, from Budapest, uh, monitoring rooms audio and visual working the bookstore anything we can do to help put this on for again 500 uh, european leaders so if that's your thing if you at all have any interest in that and in going with us to do that you can check out our information table in the back today or just in the offering plate put your uh, tear off card and just put europe or Hungary or something on it that will get our attention and uh, we'd love to talk to you more about that all right Now, you can't help but walk in our sanctuary this morning and know that we're celebrating Christmas. It's December 4th. We've already started. This church ODs on Christmas like no other church I've ever seen. And I love that about Scotts. In fact, my first Christmas here 2007, I counted 61 Christmas trees in the sanctuary that year. We don't have quite that many this year, but there's a lot. And we have a special Christmas series planned. So let's bow, and then I'll tell you about that. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks that your word gives us clear wisdom, knowledge, insight, truth about who you are. And so as we open up your book now to the passage that was read for us earlier in Luke 1, I pray, God, that you might challenge us, encourage us in our lives here today as we take a look at what your word has to say. God, thanks for this season where we can pause in our lives and even in the midst of the busyness, uh, focus our sights very clearly on the coming of Jesus into this world. And so God, as we do that as a church, may that penetrate our culture, our communities, and our world. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So a few years back, when I about a year after being here, I did a very, very quick couple of messages around Christmas time that were the beginning of a series that we want to start here today called Angels We Have Heard. Angels We Have Heard. And, and you might remember back in 2008 when I introduced this idea of how we look at Christmas. I said, you know, we always look at Christmas through the eyes of Mary or Joseph or the wise men or the typical manger scene. But, but there's also another way to look at Christmas An equally uh, vibrant way in which we can get a lot out of the Christmas stories by looking at them from the perspective of the angels who make some unusual appearances in most of the Christmas scenes. And so you might remember that I shared with you that the highest concentration of angel appearances in the Bible, and there's about 198 direct references to angels in the Bible, the highest concentration was during the whole conception and birth of Jesus, what Bible experts call the infancy narratives in the Gospels. And so check this out. On no less than five occasions, an angel appeared to some of the main players in and around Jesus' birth, and each time they had something profound and life-changing to share with those involved, and by extension, us. And so what I want to do throughout the month of December here at Scottsdale Bible is expand this series that we seeded a few years back, and take a more detailed look at four of the five angel appearances. And somebody's saying, why only four? Because we only have four weeks in the month of December. But maybe next year we'll do the fifth one, but at least let's nail down four of the five main ones, and let's see what we can learn from our, for our lives as the angel interacts with the players in the Christmas story. And so we're going to initially review a little of the information we began a few years back so that we can all be on the same page and track the angel appearances as they happened. And so if you want to open up your Bible to Luke chapter 1, we're going to park today in front of this initial Christmas scene that was read earlier to us, a scene, now tell me if this isn't true, that the average Christian today tends to drive by In fact, somebody came up to me after last service and said, you know, I I guess I've read this story before, but I never really thought much about it. I think that's rather typical for how most of us view this story that was read for us earlier, and yet this story is the scene that Luke wanted to lead off his entire gospel with. It includes an angel appearance, and so it's got to be important for you and me today. And it's the story of John the Baptist's conception, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and the interplay between John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, and the very first angel appearance in the Gospel of Luke. Now, as far as I see it, folks, let's just make this very simple today. There are two key things that this initial angel appearance teaches us about our Christian experience. And so here is the first thing and it is so relevant today and it's point one in your outline and that is that even veteran Christians or believers can fail to believe God at times this is going to be a great comfort and a great challenge to us at the same time even veteran believers can fail to believe God at times it's true And so let's review the action in this account. And to do this, I want you to track with me three distinct movements to this story. First, notice that the story begins by making clear that the main human human player here who interacts with the angel is a veteran believer in God who's also living a very godly life. So the main character here is a veteran believer in God living a very godly life. And so look at some of the details in verses 5 through 7. Look up here on the screen. It says that this guy was a priest named Zechariah, a priest. Simply note, a very spiritual and godly position in first century Jewish culture. Out of thousands of Jews living in the Holy Land at that time, there were about 18,000 priests. They were the spiritual leaders in the temple. They were the ones who devoted their entire lives to knowing God and to representing the people before God in that culture. And Zechariah, you will notice, was not just any priest, but was from the division or order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was from the lineage of Aaron. Do you see that there in verse 5? Abijah was one of 24 divisions of priesthood dating back hundreds of years. And Aaron, as you might remember, was the first priest under the Mosaic law. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth were from a very long line of spiritual leaders going way back in Israel's history. They they and their ancestors were veterans, certainly not beginners or novices when it comes to knowing and following God. And then to make it even more clear, the veteran nature of these two followers of God, it says that they were both righteous before God and that they were walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this obviously does not mean that they were perfect Nobody is perfect except God himself. What this simply means is that Luke is trying to tell us that these two had a morality aspect of their life, a law-abiding aspect to their lives in which there was consistency. They had integrity. I like as one Bible expert says it, and I quote, he says they were saints of the Old Testament type. And so think of some of the most upright, honest, godly people that you know in your life right now, say maybe a family member or the person who led you to Christ or one of the pastors who leads you, whoever, think of that person right now, multiply it by two or three times, and this is who Luke is describing in our story here. This is Zechariah, a veteran believer living a very godly life. And because we all know that long-term godliness does does not mean the absence of problems or heartaches in this world, Luke then notes in verse 7, that one of the main struggles that this couple had was that of being childless. They couldn't have kids. We don't know why. We just know that they couldn't conceive a child, and they were older now beyond childbearing years, and this was a sort of, source of great heartache for them, and it's key to the story. Now, hang on to that, and notice with me the second movement in our story here, what I call the angelic appearance and announcement. The angelic appearance and announcement it says there in verses eight through twelve that Zechariah was chosen that week to be the one priest who got to go into the temple and burn incense. This was quite a distinction. He would go into the holy place. If you know anything about the temple, from the courtyard into the holy place, and he would burn incense representing the prayers of the people before God. And only one priest each week was chosen to do that. And out of eighteen thousand priests, Zechariah was chosen. And as he was offering incense, all of a sudden the text says an angel appeared to him standing right next to him. And it says in verse 12 that Zechariah was troubled and fear fell upon him. And folks, just think about it. This makes perfect sense. I mean, I laugh today when I watch TV shows and movies that talk about angels because Hollywood today makes it sound like that if you and I were to see an angel today, it'd be like seeing some heavenly buddy, right? I, I mean, Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life, or Della Reese from Touched by an Angel, or Michael Landon from Highway to Heaven, or John Travolta in the movie Michael. I mean, think of all the angel appearances that Hollywood talks about, and it makes it sound like nobody's really freaked out, nobody's really afraid. It's just kind of, well, an angel. The only problem with that thinking is that every time an angel appears to somebody in the Bible, 66 books spanning 1,500 years, people were absolutely frightened, almost paralyzed, by being in the presence of a divine angel. And so whether it was Isaiah in the temple, or Daniel down by the river, or the women at the tomb at Jesus' death, Some of the most rough and tumble, tough and godly men and women in the Bible had an initial reaction of freaking out when they were in the presence of an angel. And the point is, you and I probably would too. It's a big thing. It's a divine thing. As we're going to see in a second here, it's a powerful thing. And in sensing this fear from Zechariah, the angel goes on to share with him a key message. He tells them that God has heard his prayer. We assume he means a prayer for a child. And that Elizabeth is going to conceive, even in her old age, miraculously. She's going to have a son, and they're to name him John. A name that in Hebrew means God has given grace. And in not stopping there, the angel spends the next four verses outlining, listing off all the things that this son will accomplish. He says that this son will bring joy and gladness, rejoicing to many that he will be great before the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in down, getting down to the nitty-gritty, he says he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just. In other words, he's going to have a ministry that helps people turn from their sin and focus more on righteousness and goodness. And then finally getting to the core of it all, the angel tells Zechariah that the main purpose of this miraculous son will be to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Do you see that there in verse 17? So as many of us know, the main purpose of God lifting up John the Baptist was to prepare for the coming of Jesus, to announce his coming, to ready the people through talking about sin and righteousness and repentance and forgiveness to point to Jesus when he finally comes on the scene and then to back off and allow Jesus as the incarnate son of God to do his ministry. It was an amazing announcement that the angel brought to Zechariah hope for an entire nation that would become hope for the entire world. And folks, in what has to be one of the most unexpected turning points in all of the Bible, after this amazing appearance and the profound words of the angel announcing an answered prayer, the birth of a son, and the incredible role that this kid is going to play in God's redemptive history of humankind, we then hit the third movement in this story, what I call the failure to believe. Whoa. The failure to believe. Look at what it says in verse 18. This is the turning point. It says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Folks, Zechariah is doubting the promise of God given by the angel here. He's doubting the very words and message that the angel gives. And I'm going to submit to you that what Zechariah is doing here is that with all of the knowledge that he has just been given, he is choosing to not trust in the knowledge that God provides. Some people have tried to be a bit more soft on Zechariah over the years, and they said, well, all he asked is for a little bit more proof. All he asks is how he might know. But we know that more was going on in his heart here because in verse 20, the angel is going to say, you didn't believe me. You didn't believe what I was saying. And as we're going to see in a second here, there's going to be some repercussions for this. What I need you to see more than anything else is that what is happening in Zechariah here is a very common thing that happens to you and I every day. And that is that we find ourselves stuck between having certain knowledge about something but afraid to take the step to trust in that knowledge we have we're caught between the precipice of knowledge and trust. Knowing something or being given knowledge about something, but, but then knowing that we need to trust in that something. And it's a difference between knowledge and trust, something that I would submit to you that all of us get, that all of us understand, because all of us experience this in more benign ways in our daily life every day. We've all learned that it's one thing to have knowledge about something, but it's another thing to actually trust it. It's another thing to actually rest your emotions and your thoughts and even your actions upon that which you have heard or that which you know. And so here's some examples. Many of you know that your spouse loves you, and yet over the years you've learned it's another thing to trust him or her, Right? Or how about this? Many of you know that your close friends can be trusted with a secret. But it's another thing to actually tell them a secret and trust that they won't tell anybody. Or as we're going to talk about here in a minute, many of us know a lot of the promises of God in the Bible and that his promises are 100% reliable because God never lies. And yet it's another thing to actually trust in these promises when the going gets tough. All of us know. The difference between knowledge and trust. And I simply need you to see that this is precisely where Zechariah is in our story. And then notice that as Zechariah feels himself caught between this cavern of knowledge and trust, he does something that, again, is so tempting for you and I, but as we're going to see, it's catastrophic for people of faith, and that is that he chooses to not trust. He chooses to not believe. He says in verse 18, how shall I know this? And then in verse 20, the angel says, look, you're not with me. You're not believing. And Zechariah's logic is simply this. I'm old. My wife is old. People don't have babies at our age ever. So how can I know your words are true? How can I bridge the gap between the knowledge that you're giving me and the trust that you're asking from me? And by the way, the answer is really simple to Zechariah's dilemma. It's hard to live It's really simple to understand. How do you bridge the gap between knowledge that we're given by God or even on a human level, trustworthy knowledge that we're given by other people, and then resting our weight upon it? It's easy. You believe. You have faith. I mean, that's what faith is. As Hebrews 11 says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And then in verse 6 it says, And without faith it's impossible to please God. I would also submit that without faith, it's hard to have a really good marriage. Without faith, it's hard to have close close friendships. Without faith, it's really hard to see your kids enter into adulthood. There's lots of aspects of life that take faith, lots of aspects of life where you and I are caught in that cavern between knowledge and trust. What bridges that is faith. It's belief. It's taking the step of faith anyways and allowing the proof to be in the pudding. And don't miss, Zechariah here chooses to not believe, to not have faith, even though there was a visible angel in the temple right in front of him, quoting Old Testament Scripture with the best news he's ever going to hear in his entire life. And what you have to remember, so that we're fair to Zechariah, is that he was a very godly man, and he was very much a veteran believer. I think that's why verses 5 and 7 make it so clear who this guy is. He was no spiritual infant and yet he failed to trust. He caved in on his own faith in a crucial moment where his faith was needed the most, and he doubted. Even godly people can fail at times to believe God. And as I said earlier, I think, and this is just my humble opinion as a pastor, I mean, this is just the application point, is that I think that this is actually a comfort and a challenge to us at the same time. Obviously, the comfort comes in in that, in in that if you're a veteran believer, if you're somebody that was born in a Christian home and taught about Jesus since you were young, or like me, had a conversion experience when you were 17 and now we're getting a lot older and you've walked with God for years, if that's you and you find yourself at times caving in on your own faith and not taking God at his word, then the comfort is, is that you're in good biblical stead. There are lots of men and women in the Bible who struggled with the Zechariah complex, Peter, Thomas, David, Moses, Gideon. I mean, that's why we have Sunday school, so we know all these names. And you know all these stories. And and, and you can take comfort in the fact that, yeah, these were great men and women of faith, but oops, there are times when they cave in too because they have feet of clay and they're only human. And so when you and I do, we need to know that there is grace. This should comfort us. And yet at the same time, it should also challenge us Because though failure to trust, now don't miss this, might be a reality in a fallen world, it is still the antithesis of faith. And faith is what pleases God. And so though God might show grace upon us and mercy, because he is that good, that when we struggle to believe in him and even choose not to believe, he still shows us grace. The reality is, is that he still, as we're going to see in a second here, is bent on restoring us to a place of faith, because faith is that sweet spot, and he's not happy that we're distrusting him in that moment. In fact, if you don't believe me, this is Kind of kind of funny. I mean, it's really not funny. It's serious, but there's some humor in this, I think. Look at the response of the angel in verses 19 to 20 here. It says, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you would be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Fascinating. There's only two angels in the entire Bible that ever give their names, Gabriel and Michael. Good. And this is only a select few times that an angel gives his name. And so when the angel says here, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, do we all understand that he's not giving some friendly introduction here? I mean, it's not a friendly scene. It's not a happy scene. It's not like Gabriel saying, you know what, you're having trouble trusting, Ah, water off a duck's back happens all the time some of the great men in the bible struggle with this time heals all things and so just give it some time and you'll finally get with the program he doesn't say that no here's kind of what he says he says do you have any idea who i am i am one of god's select emissaries sent from heaven to announce the greatest thing to ever hit humankind i'm going to be speaking to mary next we're going to see that next week a teenager Who will be caught unawares with a divine pregnancy. And Mary is going to respond to my words with a terabyte of faith. And you're sitting here doubting me with a little memory stick of faith. That's all in the margins, by the way, in the original text. (laughs) And that's really the mindset that that Gabriel has here. He's almost incredulous that this veteran believer is not believing. An angel's appeared to him. It's good news. It's good stuff. He's in a holy place. And he says, ah, how can I know whether this is true or not? And as a result of this, the angel then goes on to inform Zechariah that because of his lack of faith, he is going to not be able to talk or speak for the next few months. Now, now let's wrestle with that for, for a moment. Many commentators in the Bible have all weighed in on what is going on in this scene here with him not being able to speak. They all agree on the fact that this is some sort of discipline from God, right? That God is going to now take Zechariah into a time of solitude, into a time of not being able to speak, into a time of quietness for some sort of purpose. Some Bible experts argue that it's punishment. Kind of like, hey, you didn't trust me, so you know, let's see what silence does to your life. Others suggest, however, and I think this is more to the point, That because God is a God of grace, because Zechariah is a good man and a godly man, that the whole purpose of this silence is of a restorative nature. That God wants to bring Zechariah away into a quiet zone, a quiet place, where he will do some concentration, some thinking, more about all that has happened to him in the temple there. And through quieting him before God in his presence, he will restore him to that place of faith once again. And I think that's exactly what's going on here, folks. In fact, it's the second thing that I want you to take home with you today. Look up here on the screen and it's this, and that is that God's grace is all about bringing non-trusters back to faith. God's grace is all about bringing non-trusters, and I put it in quote there because I don't think that's a word. My, my word program kept underlining it in red, so I don't think that's a word, but, but I kept it there because you and I understand what we mean by that, right? Distrusting, non-trusting. When we're in that mode, and what I need you to see is that if God responds to you like he does to Zechariah, then even when he brings discipline into your life, it's a move of his grace all about helping bring you back to a place of faith. And I think that's exactly what's going on here with Zechariah. That God by shutting him up in his presence brings him to a place of communing with him in quietness and stillness and silence so that he might trust him once again. And by the way, this is so biblical. Elijah heard God in the stillness of a gentle breeze. David heard God in the stillness of a small voice. Jesus heard God by stealing away on multiple occasions. To quiet places. Sometimes, I'd actually say many times, we are closest to God in the stillness and the silence. Have you experienced that? We don't tend to hear God on a busy thoroughfare. We don't tend to feel close to him at malls. We don't tend to have intimate times with him when we're always on the go. No, most of us have learned that we tend to experience God most when we're in our prayer closets. When were those moments when he can have our attention, the fullness of our heart and of our mind? And it's interesting that when you read on in this story, and I'll read you just a bit more here in just a second, that that it was out of this quiet, still, restorative mode that God took Zechariah in, that Zechariah becomes a changed man. In fact, we get such a little glimpse of him in chapter 1, the early part there, But later on, and you can read it on your own later, we see a lot more of Zechariah when eight days after John the Baptist is born, a couple months after this event we're looking at here, they're in the temple, and they're giving him his name, John, and it's right at that moment that Zechariah is restored and able to speak, and what comes out of his mouth, his description of God, his belief and trust in the things of God is like a different guy. Let me read you some of what he says. He says, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, who has visited and redeemed his people, who has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to all those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Exactly. I say the same thing. Hallelujah, he said. I, I, I mean, this is a different Zechariah. This is a Zechariah who's now trusting fully all his weight is on the things of God, It's a Zechariah who, out of the stillness and the quietness that God took him to, restored him to a place of faith. And here's my simple point as we wrap up and go to the communion table. If God can do that for Zechariah, I promise you he's been on doing that for you. He really is. If you find yourself today either a new believer or a veteran believer who's relates to that precipice between knowledge and trust, who realizes that you got a long way to go in trusting God, please realize that if and as his grace is upon you, and as you trust in Jesus, his grace is upon you, then he is going to continue to chip away at your soul, chip away at your character with lots of moves of his grace, all designed to make you a more faithful, trusting, believing follower of Christ. You know, it hit me this week that there are so many promises in the Bible that God asks us to trust. And what hit me this week as we wrap up this discussion here is that I'm not sure the average Christian realizes how important it is that we actually trust the promises of God. I mean, we read about them in church. We study them in Bible study. We hear them in Sunday school. You listen to a Christian radio and you hear about them because they, they break in and read Bible verses every now and then. And, and we hear the words. We have the knowledge, but I'm not sure we realize how empty those words would be if you and I also don't take the step of faith to trust them each moment of each day. A couple of examples: Matthew 28:20, 20, Jesus promises, "I am with you always, even to the end of the age." In Hebrews 13:5, you have a corollary promise in which God says, "I will never leave you or forsake you." Do you realize that your experience of His of His presence? is conditioned upon you trusting that promise. It's true. I mean, I can tell my kids, I love them. I've got one of my daughters here today, and I can tell them I love them. But if they don't believe that, if they don't trust in that promise, if they go, ah, the old man's all wet and he doesn't know what he's talking about, then there's gonna be some distance between me and my kids. They're not gonna fully experience my love for them. It's the same with God. If you don't really believe that he's with you always, that he's never going to leave you, then you'll be lacking in your experience of him. Or how about this one, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a passage most Christians don't believe. It says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you may stand up under it. And then a corollary promise in Romans 6, 11, where he says, you have died to sin, but you're now alive in Christ. So the promise there is obvious, that as you and I trust God, lean fully on Him, as He's now inhabiting our life through the Holy Spirit, He is saying that there is no sin, no temptation in each moment that has to get the better of us. Statistically speaking, we're still going to struggle because we live in a fallen world. But the reality is, is that in each moment, we have the capability by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually resist and have victory over sin. And you ask, well, then how is it that so many Christians are still living with so much sin? It's easy. We really don't have as much faith as we think we do. We really don't believe God as much as we, think, as, as we say we do. I think of that every time I go to the refrigerator. I've shared that with you guys. I mean, I know we laugh at it, but I still struggle with Cheez-Its. I mean, I struggle with all that stuff. And there's times where I know it does not honor God in what I order at the restaurant. And there's times where I'm sitting there, I'm telling you, I mean, I know you guys laugh at it, but I'm on that precipice between knowledge and trust. I'm on that precipice between knowing I know what God wants. I know what's good for me. I know what will allow me to live till I'm 85 or 90. And I know what's going to send me to the grave at 57. And some days I choose well and other days I don't choose well. But here's what I do know. I have the power by the Holy Spirit who lives in me to be dead to sin but alive to Christ. No temptation has seized me except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let me be tempted beyond what I can bear, but will also provide a way out, usually it's broccoli, so that I might stand up under it. Right? Amen. And and, and it's true. He always provides a way out. It's not always a fun way, but he always provides a way out. And and then one last example, and with this we're done. How How about this one? The fact that God has said that once you're saved, you're always saved. That when you've come home to him in Jesus, you are now predestined, Ephesians 1.11, sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13, that you're now a part of Jesus' fold, John 10.28, and nobody can snatch you out of his hand. Isn't that cool? Our church believes that so strongly, we actually wrote that into our statement of faith. We call it assurance of, of your salvation. And yet, how many times do I have people come into my office and just say, Oh, pastor, I can't be saved. I messed up again. I guess I'm just not saved. I go, really? So you never come to a point in your life where you believed and trusted in Jesus for eternal life? Well, yeah, 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 I did. But, I go, there's no but. If you've come to faith in Christ and had a legitimate conversion experience where you've trusted in him, nobody, not even yourself, can snatch you out of his hand. That's a promise, folks. Amen to that. Are you starting to see? You and I have a choice. We can become like Zechariah and cave in on our faith at times, and God, because he loves you, will restore you, though it might be a brutal restoration. Or we can choose today to trust him, to take him at his word, to bank on his promises. So I don't know what it is you're going through, but I'm guessing that we're all going through something where God is speaking to you in that still, small voice to trust him. As we lead off in our series on what the angels teach us, here's the first thing. God is trustworthy. He has spoken to you. His word is true, and you can trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace that is showered to us beyond measure in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I'm fired up about this month to uh, focus on the core of our faith, and that's the coming of Jesus into this world. And Lord, as we unpack these angel stories to see what they mean for us today, so God, I pray that as each of us gives hopefully sober and cogent thought to our lives and to our world, that Father, you might challenge us and encourage us with what we've seen here today. Help us to be honest about where we are in our faith and the things that we are succeeding at in the areas where we need to grow and trust you more. And Lord, remind us we can do it. Remind us we have the capacity in and through your son Jesus to trust you with all the fiber of our being. To go to the table now, Father, the communion table, I pray you might bless our time. Make this a worshipful moment where uh, you might be honored and glorified and our faith strengthened. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.